0: The
1: clowns on the left
0: and the jokers on the right.
1: And join Michael Smirkanish right here. In the middle.
0: This is the Smirkonish Podcast for independent minds.
2: Hey, it's Michael Smirkanish. Thank you so much for subscribing to my daily podcast. This is a special episode today. I'm still talking extensively on my SiriusXM radio program about what's happening in Ukraine. And as a matter of fact, today I had a very informative conversation on oil prices. Every once in a while, I like to run through the basics of an issue. In this case, oil for dummies, and I, of course, am the dummy-in-chief. I will share that with you in just a moment, but first, something special. I'm speaking to you on the 10th of March. This is the release date of the paperback version of Eric Larson's book, The Splendid and the Vile, a Saga of Churchill, Family, and Defiance During the Blitz. It's a great read and a subject I'm keenly interested in. Why am I mentioning it here? Well, if you're an avid reader as I am, I want to invite you to check out my other podcast, which is called Book Club with Michael Smirkanish. It's all interviews that I've done with authors over the past 30 years, many of them, you know, very contemporary. James Patterson, Lord Jeffrey Archer, Pete Hamill, Hillary Clinton, Nelson DeMille, uh, Brad Meltzer coming up. I invite you to subscribe. It's available right here on this platform. So a primer or primer, primer or primer, one or the other on oil and gas prices in just a few minutes. But first... From Book Club with Michael Smirconish Podcast, my interview with Eric Larson. This is July of 2020.
0: Book Club with Michael Smirconish is now in session.
2: Eric Larson is the number one best-selling author of Devil in the White City and Dead Wake. His books have sold. Are you ready for this? More than 9 million copies. And now comes the hit The Splendid and the Vile a saga of Churchill, family, and defiance during the Blitz. This is Eric Larson. Hey, Eric, thanks so much for being here.
3: Hey, my pleasure.
2: You proved me wrong. You ready?
3: Uh-oh. <laughs> How'd I do that?
2: I have read Manchester. I yep. have not only been to Chartwell many times, I've actually seen the private bathtub to the public. Uh, I love... I love the Cabinet War Rooms. I am one of the only radio broadcasters to ever have hosted a program from there. Wow. Alan, Alan Packwood has hosted me at the Churchill College in Cambridge. I have even been to lunch with Sir Nicholas Soames, Winston Churchill's grandson. When I heard of your book, I said, love Larson, loved Devil in the White City, But what is there left to say about Winston Churchill? And man, oh man, did you prove me wrong. So congrats.
3: Well, well, thank you very much. But I will tell you that in the uh, four and a half years that I was working on this book, I think I said uh, something along those lines to myself every day, like, what am I trying to do?
2: Well, but in the afterword to the book, somewhere at the end, you said that you thought that there would be Value in the Frivolous, or what had heretofore been regarded as frivolous, when you put all the frivolous together, for me, it provided a narrative that up until now I was totally lacking, at least with regard to that one snapshot, that one year, his first year of being prime minister from May of 40 to May of 41. That was the, the beauty of the book.
3: Well yeah you know, my my goal was to really the, the the whole purpose of the book was try to get a sense of how anybody goes about surviving um uh something like the bliss, which is you know which what brought me to that one year period and and so that really necessarily involved getting into the into the the quotidian details of how people got through their lives, which weirdly enough nobody else had done before. And so, to me, it was just like, you know, I mean, after a while, I started to hit my stride, and I started to think, wait a minute, there is an opportunity here to say something new. So, and if it's, you know, if it's bringing in the frivolous, which I don't think it is, not frivolous, it's like the way they really lived their lives, you know. Right, Um, right. But uh, it it, it became a very interesting journey into the personal side of, of that family.
2: Okay, how about this? I, I went to Gettysburg two weeks ago. I should be embarrassed to tell you that as a Pennsylvanian, I hadn't been there since I was a kid. I won't bore you with the reason that I made the journey. Came back, talked about it up first on television, then I talked about it on radio, and the telephone lines melted down with people who are really knowledgeable about Gettysburg and the Civil War generally. You know that all things Churchill are like that. There, there's this whole, you know, cottage industry of, of authorities. You had to know they'd all be looking over your shoulder every inch of the final product. Was that intimidating?
3: Oh, you know what? It was in- <laughs> was incredibly intimidating so so actually i i, I did something that i have not done previously previously on any of my books and i think i'm going to do forever afterwards first of all i hired a professional fact checker, a wonderful woman who works for the washington post um uh but i also sent the book the manuscript uh, to, the penultimate manuscript shall we say to uh to three uh three churchill excerpts one of whom was alan packwood um, and they were all graciously uh, you know, agreed to read it. And much to much to my delight, they loved it. Now they each had like like their their own list of like you know you know three dozen critiques about oh, well you know we don't say this in London, we do say this. Um, but they loved it, and, and and they were actually surprised that the book told them things they hadn't actually already know. So I I breathed a huge sigh of relief.
2: Okay, so I've buried the lead. This is Eric Larson, best known, I would say, for historical nonfiction. The new book, The Splendid and the Vile, is a look at one year, a critical year, the first year of, of Winston Churchill's uh, prime, uh, prime ministry, I guess I should say, May of 40 through May of 1941. How much knowledge of Churchill did you have going into the project?
3: Uh, first of all one of the one of the little tweaks that my british readers gave me was that it's not called the prime ministry it's called the premiership who knows uh-huh. but, but anyway you know what i knew going into this was actually not much i mean i had read some you know one churchill biography i'd read the manchester thing um, and i have to emphasize that i i came to this book not because of churchill the original goal was simply to get a grasp on how people did survive the German air campaign of 1941 in London in light of a sort of an epiphany I had when I moved to Manhattan and just realized how 9-11 was so different for people here than, than, you know, anywhere else in the country. So I set out initially just to find a typical London family to write about. And then I thought, well, why not write about the quintessential London family, which is the Churchill family and their his, his advisors and so forth? And that's when I plunged into, you know, the Churchill literature, and then that's when I started asking myself, what, what am I doing? But, you know, I, I made a strategic decision very early on that I was going to read as much as I could to get a really good sense of the Churchillian landscape, you know, the high points and low points and so forth. And then using my lens, like, how did they do it? How did they survive this on a daily basis? I was going to plunge into the archives, which is where I feel most comfortable. And that's where all the good stuff is.
2: Did you know of the existence of the so-called mass observation diaries before you undertook this project?
3: I am ashamed to say no. Well, you know, I plunged in. I plunged in. I, I mean, you know, like, I, honestly, like I well, yeah,
2: tell everybody what they are.
3: Yeah, I will, I will. but I, you know, I came across this actually, I mean, early on, as soon as I started reading about the, the Churchillian landscape, I came across this outfit, Mass Observation. Mass Observation was a social research organization, non-governmental, that was founded before the war, before anybody knew there was a war coming, um, the goal being to, to try to get a sense of what ordinary British life was like. And so they recruited you know, literally hundreds of diarists, to do daily diaries and submit them for, for, for essentially for processing. So along comes the war, and, and many of these diarists continued to keep their diaries. And so what you thus have is this invaluable sense of the day-to-day stress and trauma and heroics of that, of that whole period. It was a, an incredible, and is an incredible, resource.
2: Right. So what it allowed you to do was not only to rely on on the rich record of what was going on at 10 Downing or at Checkers, to a, a lesser extent, at Chartwell during that year, and tell the story of the Churchill family, but you really were able to tell us what life was like for the ordinary Londoner.
3: Yes, yes. I mean, the minutiae <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I I am transfixed by some of the little details of of that period. One character, for example, speaking of mass observation, one of my favorite characters is a young woman named Olivia Cockett, and she was uh, she was actually having an she she was a Scotland Yard clerk. She was having an affair with a married man, and 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 her her diary, which she kept throughout 1940-41 the critical period, her, her diary really sketches what I think is the is, is, is the essential arc of how Londoners got through this thing. She began, you know, with the first deliberate bombing of London on September 7, 1940. She was terrified, terrified like everybody else in London. Um, her terror persisted for a while. And then one day, one day, she put out an incendiary bomb that had landed outside her home. Incendiary bombs were what the Germans dropped first during a raid to light their targets so that other bombers um, following would know where to bomb. Um, and so she, she, as people were instructed to do, she put out this incendiary bomb by herself. And she was so thrilled, so elated, to at last, you know, at last she was able to do something in this war. And suddenly her fear went away. Her fear went away. Um, and she became, you know, progressively more heroic. Um, her boyfriend, unfortunately, became more and more cowardly, which really annoyed her. Um, but you know this this arc continues to the point where, at, at a later point in in in, in the story, um, she's out walking with Bill during an air air raid, as one does. Um, two bombs, uh, they hear two bombs falling. The characteristic scream of these two German high explosive bombs. Um, Bill, her her lover, shouts, "Get down!" And, she, and her response is, "Not in my new coat, I'm not." <laughs>
2: <laughs> this this so. was really this was really the big takeaway for me was. What I never appreciated up until reading Eric Larson's new book was the way in which life did go on. For example, I, I highlighted a couple of things. Page 173, you've got a journalist named Virginia Cowles. She is uh, near Dover. Uh, I'll read if you don't mind. The setting oh, was majestic. Okay, the setting was majestic. In front of you stretched the blue water of the channel, and in the distance you could distinguish the hazy outline of the coast of France. Houses lay below. Boats and trawlers drifted in the harbor, agleam with sun. The water sparkled. Above hung 20 or more immense gray barrage balloons like airborne manatees. Meanwhile, high above, pilots fought to the death. Quote, you lay in the tall grass with the wind blowing gently across you and watched the hundreds of silver planes swarming through the heavens like clouds of gnats. People were able to lead their lives, and yet above them, or frankly in front of them, the war was abounding.
3: Absolutely, absolutely. You know, I mean, it was not unusual. For example, somebody would be driving down a country road, and there would be an RAF pirate, a pirate pirate pilot, an RAF pilot uh, trying to hitch a ride back to his base. I mean, you know, um, this was it was it was it was a situation where you know, as as Germany intensified this air campaign. Um, it really was a battle that was fought in the skies over over London, over over the British countryside. You know, you'd be pruning your roses and you would see, a, a, you know, death in the air. So, and and I, I really wanted to try to capture that sense as well.
2: Well, was it was it not exhilarating for these folks?
3: Well, <laughs> depends on which folks. Uh, for their parents, parents of those pilots, I wouldn't say so. But, but, um, yeah, I mean, it, it was exhilarating. It was exhilarating to watch this. Um, and, in fact, sometimes too exhilarating. There was an, there was an episode where there was a, a, an air battle uh, that took place uh, over the channel in, in view of a BBC radio car that had been sent out to, to try to observe a, a raid and to comment on it. And, and and the commentator was so enthusiastic, got so into it, treating it almost as if it were a soccer match, that the next day, according to home intelligence reports, which is another incredible archive of material, according to home intelligence reports, people... You know the, the, the citizens of 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 England, of London, were appalled at the enthusiasm. At that, at, you know this this is this is life and death. How dare you do this as if it were a soccer match? However, another half of the group of listeners, you know, polled by this Home Intelligence, loved it. They thought this was fantastic. It was completely elating.
2: This is Eric Larson. The book is The Splendid and the Vile. Again, he focuses on. The first year, I'll say, premiership of Winston Churchill, that one year happened to involve some of the better known oratory of the prime minister, including this, which I think was June 4.
4: We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island. Whatever the cost may be, we shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields, and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. Eric, what surprised
2: me from from your book is that, quote, the speech had done little to fortify the public. In other words, some of the speeches that historically we look back on and we say, my God, what a wordsmith, what a delivery. At the time, some of them were not interpreted as such.
1: Well,
3: well, some at the time were perceived as just being what they were, which is, which is speeches. Uh, you know, I mean, Churchill was, Churchill was known to be an incredibly articulate uh, speaker and, but, you know, one, one thing that I, I think is very important to note, you know, the, 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 uh, that, the, the speech that you just uh, played a recording of was the Dunkirk speech. Um, and, and beyond the, 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 the rhetoric that we remember, and, you know, I'm not taking anything away from those lines. They were fantastic, especially in retrospect. But, uh, you yeah, the thing that I, I, I came to appreciate in the course of reading many of many of these uh, speeches, and I, I would argue that the Churchill we know is the Churchill who emerged in 1940-41, But the thing about these speeches that that I found particularly striking was their structure. Um, What is noteworthy about Churchill is that um, he didn't try to snow the public. He didn't try to give them happy news or tell them a false story. Um, He understood on an instinctive level that when people are being bombed at night or, you know, when when their sons are are holed up at Dunkirk, that, uh, you know, they, they know what the ground truth is. So his, his approach was to give a sober accounting of, of, of whatever was happening at the moment. He did this consistently through, through, a, through a number of his speeches during that year. Give a sober account, sometimes so sober and uh, <laughs> so terrifying that home intelligence reported the next day that, that people were absolutely terrified, that they felt sick after hearing, hearing a speech. But he would always follow them with actual practical grounds for optimism, you know, for example, pointing out the strength of the RAF, uh, re- reminding his listeners that, by the way, Britain does have a Navy, you know, a very strong Navy. And then would come that fabulous rhetoric that we will, you know, we will we'll fight on the beaches or, or never has so much been owed by so many to so few.
2: Well, I have I have one more, if you'll indulge me. I think yeah, this yeah, was go, go. I think this was June 19.
4: Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duty. So, bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealths last for a thousand years, men will still say, This was their finest hour.
2: I learned from Eric Larson that some listeners thought he was drunk that night, and in truth, he had a cigar perched in his mouth the whole time. Is that it?
3: Yes, he was being—he was being a bit petulant. He had given—he delivered the speech during the day at the House of Commons, with, with to great effect, and and that night he had to do a BBC speech. Um, he, he was doing it grudgingly. He was—he was sort of muscled into it by the Ministry of Information, and they expected him to write a new speech for for, for the public audience, or the BBC. But Churchill, being Churchill, had a tendency at times to be somewhat obstreperous. Churchill decided he was going to deliver that same speech, and by God, he was going to do, do it with a cigar in his mouth. And so, yeah, absolutely. The next day, people were, you know, again, home intelligence was picking up on this. They they, they heard from uh, a number of listeners who were concerned that 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 Churchill might have dined a little bit too well that night, that he was drunk. Somebody suggested he might have some kind of a heart condition and should lie down. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, so, so it was... Uh, It was was, was great. It was great. Okay.
2: Finally, will you indulge me and evaluate some prose from an aspiring writer?
3: Uh, Evaluate some prose from an aspiring writer. What do you mean?
2: I want to read something to you and have you critique it briefly. Sure. We have, quote, we have seen many women elegized and eulogized and otherwise honored from Marilyn Monroe to the most recent Freudian preoccupation in the person or more precisely in the body of Sybil Shepherd, But we have perpetuated a gross neglect of the real woman. While our more visceral needs are associated with the great bodies of our time, what of the intellect behind those bodies, the real meat, as it were, of character? Perhaps modern mid-teen America would grow up totally I don't know, to the image of woman as body. But there is a cult of admiration extant today in which neither bounteous Bardot nor luscious shepherd may gain paramountcy. I can't even pronounce some of the words used in this, but do they ring a bell?
3: You know, they actually don't ring a bell to me, but I got a feeling you're going to tell me they were written by Churchill.
2: No! Eric, holy what? crap, that is Eric Larson, sophomore, sophomore in the college, November 28, 1973, the Daily what? Pennsylvanian.
3: Uh, holy <laughs> <God>. oh. <laughs> I thought oh, for man. sure you'd recognize oh, it. <laughs> I got to tell I got to give you a huge amount of points here. I, I, nobody, nobody has ever done this. This is so great. This so, is so
2: it fantastic. was under the headline, The Immortal Mrs. Peel, and you were writing about Sybil Shepherd at the time. Uh, I guess her character, Diana Rigg. And, and I honestly, I need a dictionary to get through what you wrote at Penn as a sophomore. <laughs>
3: was I'm remembering now. I think it was about Diana Rigg, who, who yes. was my my the person I, I was just absolutely in love with from the age of like <laughs> twelve.
2: Uh, good stuff. Hey, man, I love I love your book. I love your. I've not finished it. I'm two thirds of the way through, and you know what? I I don't want to finish it, uh, yeah. which is the uh, the the most number of stars I can give you. So, yeah. what a privilege to have you here, and I wish you all good things.
3: Thank you very much. I loved it.
2: That's Eric Larson, ladies and gentlemen. The book is tremendous. The Splendid and the Vile. I highly recommend it. You know I get wrapped up in books sometimes, and I love having a good book on my nightstand, and, and this is it. It just, it just so speaks to me. And I, I didn't want to put Eric through this final comment um, because I, I just didn't want to have to make him wade into this. But as I read this book... About Winston Churchill and what he did for the world. The idea that the statue of of Churchill adjacent to Westminster is under wraps and protected from protesters, it appalls me. It appalls me. None of us is perfect, but it appalls me. The man literally saved the world.
0: Book Club with Michael Smirconish. New episodes drop Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays.
2: Download and listen to the Book Club with Michael Smirconish podcast on the SXM app, Stitcher, Pandora, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: This is the Smirconish podcast from SiriusXM.
2: You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit BuyAToyota.com.
0: Listen to Michael live, weekdays on POTUS. Sirius XM channel 124 and on the SXM app.
2: Okay, some of you complained and I heard you. As a matter of fact, I'm about to over deliver because the complaint was, hey, can you get a guest who knows a little something about oil? Because so many callers would call and raise questions and I would find myself saying, that's a really good question, but I don't know the answer to it. Dr. Halima Croft is Managing Director and Global Head of Commodity Strategy for the Royal Bank of Canada Capital Markets and joins me now. Dr. Croft, thank you so much for being on my CNN program and for your willingness to now join me on radio. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
2: So I've got questions beneath your pay grade. I hope you won't mind my naivete, but I'll start with this. I just read something in Axios that described the United States as being, quote, effectively energy independent. Okay, if we are nearly energy independent, then why are our gas prices soaring, given that we shut off Russian oil when, frankly, we don't import that much of it to begin with?
1: Well, Michael, the issue is that even though we've had a dramatic increase in U.S. production, we still take barrels from other parts of the world because of what types of crude our refineries are geared to run. Canada is actually the largest source of our imports, but we do take oil from Mexico, from Saudi Arabia. We used to take oil from Venezuela. And so we are not entirely fulfilled in all of our energy needs Based on our U.S. supply alone, but the other issue is just a global market for oil. And so, when we have disruptions in other parts of the world, we feel the price pressure at home. We are not insulated from the market impacts that we see with other producers.
2: Is the global market the reason why you think it took so long for the Biden administration to finally say, "Okay, we will end all"? Russian energy imports? In other words, we knew that we'd be putting our allies, namely Germany, in an odd spot?
1: I think it's two issues. I think we were concerned about the fact that the broader demand and supply balance for oil was growing very, very tight. We have this economic reopening as people are getting in planes, driving in cars, going back to offices, and we have the global supply picture quite constrained. A number of oil companies, oil-producing nations, Cut back on investment in the energy sector in 2020 when prices collapsed. Remember when oil went negative? And so now we're facing a situation where there wasn't a lot of supply out there as demand was increasing. And so I do believe that the White House was concerned about the broader inflationary impacts if we were to lose a large amount of Russian oil exports. But certainly a country like Germany is far more heavily dependent on Russian energy and Russian commodities in general than the United States. They take 34% of their oil from Russia, 32% of their natural gas, and 50% of their hard coal. And so German officials were particularly concerned about a major disruption in Russian commodity exports because they were concerned that their citizens would have to choose between eating and heating.
2: If you control for inflation, are gas prices really as out of control as we perceive them to be?
1: I mean, gas prices are high. Make no mistake about this. I mean, consumers are feeling real pain at the pump. Now, U.S. consumers have more discretionary savings because of the pandemic, but this is really impacting pocketbooks at home. And so a lot of people are saying we're willing to pay this price in order to defend the principle that Russia cannot invade a sovereign nation and rip up the security architecture in Europe that has prevailed since the, you know, the wars, but this is really it is a it's an economic strain on American consumers. But this is a situation where there is no really easy off ramp for the White House. They are trying to get additional supply on the market. People may have read that you know the White House sent a delegation to Venezuela, potentially to we we'll remove sanctions and get more oil from Venezuela into the United States. There's some talk about will we get barrels from Iran if this nuclear agreement is signed. They're certainly trying to get the Saudis to produce more oil. But there's just not a lot of available supply relief. And that raises a question I was just in Houston. What can the U.S. do? You've had the U.S. Energy Secretary out asking for more barrels from U.S. producers, essentially saying we're on war footing. But here's the problem. U.S. production is going to grow. But in order to see a really, really big surge in U.S. output, it's going to take time. If you put a new rig to work, you're not going to see new oil for six months. So we are in this period right now where we have a real supply crunch.
2: So relative to the escalating prices, a point you just made a moment ago, I've heard from callers who have said, why can't the oil companies take a hit? Why must they necessarily profit on this unique search situation? Your thoughts on that or what?
1: Well, I mean, again, I do think there's a broader sort of fundamental backdrop. I mean, there's certain issues in terms of like tax policy, like you would be paying more for gasoline if you're in the state of California because of the particular tax regime there. But I think there is this just broader issue of, no, it's just in Houston about the fact that there is a real time lag in terms of ability of U.S. production to grow. And also, U.S. oil companies have been hit with demands by investors that they actually do not invest profits in growing production, but they return profits to shareholders. And this has been a real source of back and forth discussion this week in houston with oil companies essentially saying we want the green light from investors to be able to put more rigs to work and grow production and that's what white house officials were saying this week as well they issued statements saying wall street you actually need to green light oil companies putting more money into the ground increasing output don't punish oil company ceos for growing production lessen up your demands as they return that capital shareholders. So this is a very, very live debate that's going on right now.
2: Imagine you're hosting this radio program or one like it, and a caller calls and says, well, why can't we just turn on the Keystone XL pipeline?
1: Well, again, I would say this. Keystone XL was not near completion when that project was canceled. It was about 8% completed, and that work has been going on in Canada there was a reason why President Trump, who was very publicly supportive of Keystone XL, was not able to secure completion of that project. It was being held up by court challenges you know, in the states that that pipeline was going to run through. And so this was not a situation where we had a completed pipeline that was turned off. So even if President Biden were to say, OK, go forward with Keystone XL, we still have these legal issues in the various states. And it's not going to be completed in any time to provide relief to this immediate situation. I think we can think more about lessons learned. So, for example, as we talk about European countries moving away from dependence on Russian gas, should the White House be much more proactive in supporting the development and export of U.S. natural gas, permitting, for example, natural gas export facilities, Permitting the pipelines that you need to carry the product to these facilities. I do think there are important steps that the White House can take now to avert future crises in terms of what type of projects they're willing to support. But it comes at a moment where the U.S. has been very focused on the climate change agenda and getting to these important net zero initiatives. This is not an administration that came into office wanting to increase U.S. production. And now it's faced with these circumstances with having to make such acts of U.S. oil and gas producers.
2: Hilly McCroft is Managing Director and Global Head of Commodity Strategy for the Royal Bank of Canada Capital Markets. Let me take you out of your, your C-suite and bring you down to a granular level. I just read an interesting take in the LA Times this morning, trying to answer the question of why, in the same neighborhood, could there be such disparate gas prices at the pump? I'm sure you've heard that issue discussed in the past. Any thoughts on it?
1: No, again, I think there are issues. Again, I think, you know, California is such an interesting case. I was just there in terms of what we're seeing in terms of much higher prices there than national averages. So I think the California case is really unique in terms of, like, state policy. But in terms of, like, localities and different gas stations, I do think that's an issue about sort of, you know, decisions being made. You know, by individual operators. But also, again, when you think about California, it does have a different tax regime than other states. And that's why you are paying higher prices there. But Dr. Croft, Dr. Would, Croft you know, I,
2: I see it, but I see it on the East Coast, too. I, I see it where I live on the I-95 corridor that that in the same geographic area you'll see, if you look you'll see disparity and i i wonder is it the operator trying to take advantage is there some degree of gouging taking place here where under the cover of inflation and war in ukraine some are seeking to profit based on it and by the way when i've had that conversation with certain operators i'm often told in fact, the guy where I, I buy a lot of my gas will say to me, uh, I don't even make money on gas. He said, I make money on snacks.
1: No, again, I mean, I think you're certainly highlighting that you know, individual operators make decisions based on, you know, again, not just supply and demand fundamentals, but also potentially what they can believe they can profit by circumstances. But again, there is still, even with these issues on disparities and questions about how individual operators are making pricing decisions, that does not get away from the fact that there is this broader dynamic in the market where we have real concerns about shortness of supply. And again, individual operators may take advantage of these circumstances, but there is definitely a very serious market dynamic that is going on, which is contributing to these rise in prices. Again, people make individual choices, but there is this existing problem in the market right now.
0: This is the Smirconish podcast from Sirius XM.
2: Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com.
0: Listen to Michael live, weekdays on POTUS. Sirius XM channel 124 and on the SXM app.
2: Okay, final question. Wipe the slate clean. Make us all look smart. Leave us with something that you think is most important about this climate and this issue.
1: Well, I think this is a real issue about how do you prepare for the future? We're always sort of fighting the last war. And I do think there has been such debates about has this White House walked away from the sort of American energy dominant story, American energy independence story? And I do think right now the White House has the opportunity to try to look ahead and say, how do we prepare for the next crisis when they think about what type of infrastructure they want to permit? What is the role, for example, of natural gas in the energy transition? Is it of strategic value as we think about weaning countries away from Russian gas? is of strategic value in terms of meeting climate objectives, particularly in developing nations. So I do think it's an important inflection point for the White House to think about how do we deploy this U.S. resource abundance for our strategic goals.
2: Dr. Halima Croft, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Dr. Croft is the Managing Director and Global Head of Commodity Strategy for the Royal Bank of Canada Capital Markets. Yeah, that is what the, I mean, look, day to day I'm driving an electric car, so I'm not seeing as much of Joe as I used to, but we still have some gas cars in our house. And when I recently had a conversation with, you know, my guy, he said to me, I'm not even making money on what I have out there at the pumps. It's all, it's all snacks these days. And it's, and it's the, the repair shop that I operate. I've I just this issue of why one station has one price and a mile away and it's not just an L.A. thing, although I'll get to this when we run through the headlines because the L.A. Times tried to get to the bottom of it with specific stations like why is no, this station on, on Fairfax? Yard. yeah. You know? So that's that's what we found. Well,
1: I must say that it has given me pause. I am all for whatever it takes to end this war and to stop. So I'm not complaining about high gas prices. There are people going through far far worse things. But you know, we have a diesel, we have a regular car and we have a diesel car and watching the the few, those fuel prices go up Kind of gives me pause for the amount of driving we usually do in the summertime. So we'll see what happens with these, but it's definitely. I think it's going to change people's habits, um, possibly in a good way. Uh, But but it's definitely going to have an impact.
2: Well, there's something interesting uh, that we posted today at Smirkinish.com. Consequently, in the newsletter, we'll get to this in the headlines as well. If you think this is going to be an an automatic uh, boom for electric vehicles, the problem is you got to wait because you you can't get anything. Can't can't, get can't get them and wow. there's a big backlog and we've talked about the used car issue generally but even more so for electric Are vehicles people making
1: offers on yours
2: uh yes no yes
1: no
4: i was kidding
2: yeah, yeah. ups offered to buy it no uh a little humor there. Thank you,
0: oh TC. A little slow on the draw you are.
4: Uh. All right.
0: Hear more of Michael Smirconish on Sirius XM's POTUS, Channel 124.
1: Live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east or anytime on the SXM app.
0: Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com.
1: Michael Smirkanish for Independent Minds.